I know not with what weapons World War III will be fought. But World War IV will be fought with sticks and stones. Hello, everyone. Sydney St. James here with you today and thanking you for dropping in for this very special Memorial Day tribute to the USS Houston. This story is one that was taken from the actual memoirs of my Uncle Charlie Pryor that were given to my mom maybe some 25 years ago. And I've written a novel, but I just haven't published it. But today, I decided I would take part one and part two over this Memorial Day weekend, and I would broadcast the true story of the brave men who were on that ship. A ship that got its name the Galloping Ghost of the Java Coast. That's right. After the Japanese Empire had said that they had sunk the ship four or five times, each time the Houston came back. And they came back even stronger. The brave men of the Houston lasted and lasted, and this is a true story that you're going to hear over this weekend of the Houston and its crew. I hope you stay tuned and I hope you enjoy my story and as always, thanks for dropping in. And now, I'll let my music finish. One of my most favorite songs by Glenn Miller, by the way. And then, we will begin the tribute to the USS Houston. Barb, Barb, hand me that wrench over there, would you? Please? What's wrong? You can help me repair this machine of mine and talk on my Memorial Day podcast. Come help me. Sorry, please. It's Memorial Day. It's the weekend and I gotta get my time machine fixed. I gotta get it fixed in time. Could you help me? Okay, what is it? Can't you say anything? Anything at all? Barbara shook her head back and forth. She noticed that my microphone was pulled out on my time machine, and I suppose she's a little shy to talk on the podcast today, knowing it's going out to over 50 countries around the world. Go figure, right? I bet if I left a load of dirty dishes in the sink or the bed not made, she would forget about how shy she actually is, right? (laughs) But, anyhow, hello everyone. Today, I'm finishing up the repairs 
from my last time travels to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I was lucky to get back to 2022 then and to make the repairs just in time for my trip to the beginning of World War II for the recording of this Memorial Day special. And just a little more tightening and I'll have this rascal fixed. Ah, now, that's it. Now, after a few moments, a short pull on the lever, and I will be whisked off to where my controls are set on the surface of the USS Houston in the Pacific Ocean. Wait, what's that? I'm here. I'm here. It worked. A radio is being broadcast across the entire ship. Not a man is moving. As everyone has their ears listening closely to the announcement from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt from the radio signal that's coming in from both CBS and NBC Radio. Senators and representatives, I have the distinguished honor of presenting the President of the United States. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate, of the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation, and at the solicitation of Japan, was still in conversation with its government and its emperor looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense. But always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory.
interpret the will of the Congress and of the people. When I assert that we will not only defend ourselves to the uttermost, but will make it very certain that this form of treachery shall never again endanger us. Hostilities exist. There is no blinking at the fact that our people, our territory, and our interests are in grave danger. With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph so help us God. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. After the broadcast, I quickly rushed back up to the place I had landed my time machine in my own bedroom quarters on the USS Houston. It was near sunset. The date was February 28, 1942. The ship I was on, the USS Houston, Admiral Tommy Hart's former Asiatic flagship, had just gone off the radar without a trace somewhere off the northwest coast of Java. The mystery of this great warship for almost five years remained unsolved until the war ended and small groups of survivors were discovered in Japanese prisoner of war camps, scattered from the island of Java through the Malay Peninsula, the jungles of Burma and Thailand, and northward to the islands of Japan. Of the 1,008 officers and men who manned her, including myself, approximately 350 escaped from the sinking ship, only to be captured in the jungles of Java, or as they floundered helplessly in the sea. Of the original survivors, only 266 lived through the ordeal of filth and brutal treatment brutally handed out to them in the Japanese prisoner of war camps. To me, the story of the USS Houston, especially during the last three weeks of her valiant battle against overwhelming odds, is one of the greatest epics of the United States Navy. However, Historians of World War II seem to have almost neglected it completely. 
you don't ever see any silver screen movies or anything of the of the USS Houston and you don't see TV movies about the USS Houston but not only that in 1970 my mother was given a typewritten manuscript from my uncle Charlie Pryor who was one of the 266 who lived through the ordeal of as i put it filth and brutal treatment my story today is a long time overdue in 2016 i wrote a novel called the galloping ghost from the java coast which finally told the story of these brave men and of these gallant 266 souls but for unexplainable reasons it was never published it still sits quietly on my computer but i have decided to tell the story in this two-part podcast as a memorial to all the brave men who fought so gallantly on the USS Houston during World War II. My time machine comes in very handy, but I could have been killed just as easily as any other man on that fateful night back in 1942. What happened to the USS Houston that particular night was a nightmare of many years standing. Yet each incident of that wild battle still lives on in my mind as vividly as though it actually happened only a few minutes ago however in reality it actually did but jumping from one time to another can be very very exhausting so today thank you everyone from me Sydney St. James author of the galloping ghost of the java coast and your host today as we continue on with part 1 of this two-part podcast as i tell my memorial day story that has been passed by historians around the world for such a very long time On that fateful evening of February 28th, 1942, I was standing on the quarterdeck contemplating the restful blue-green of the Java coast as it fell slowly behind us. Many times before I had found comfort in its beauty, but this one night it only appeared a mass of coconut and banana palm trees that had lost all their meaning I was way too tired and too worried with pondering the question that raced through the mind of every man aboard including mine were we going to get through Sunda Strait There were many aboard who felt that like a long-tailed cat the USS Houston had already expended 8 of its 9 lives and that this one last request of fate would be too much. I should interject that my novel tells the story of all seven battles. But here, my story and my broadcast today 
it only picks up on the anxious but quiet February night in 1942. Japs cruiser planes had shadowed us all day and it was certain that our movements were no mystery to the enemy forces closing in on Java. Furthermore, it was most logical to conclude that Jap submarines were stationed throughout the length of the Sunda Strait to intercept and destroy ships attempting escape into the massive Indian Ocean. Actually, there wasn't much breathing space for optimism. We were trapped. But there had been other days when the odds were stacked heavily in the Japs' favor, and we had somehow, some way, managed to battle through. Maybe it was because I had the naval aviator's philosophical outlook, and maybe it was because I was just a plain damn fool, or actually, a plain old-timer's traveler's curious well-being. But I couldn't quite bring myself to believe that the Houston had run her course, and that means it could easily have been myself as well. I thought briefly of hightailing it back to my time machine, back in my quarters, but again, all my friends would start shouting, chicken, chicken. It was with this feeling of shaky confidence that I turned and I headed back to my stateroom. I had just been relieved as officer of the deck and the prospect of a few hours rest, oh, they were most appealing. That's right, even we time travelers need our sleep. The wardroom and the inside of the ship through which I went back through was dark, for the heavy metal battle ports were bolted shut and lights were not permitted within the darkened ship. Only the eerie blue beams of a few battle lights close to the deck served to guide each step of my feet. I felt my way through the narrow companionway and snapped on my pocket-sized flashlight briefly to seek out the outline of my stateroom door. As I stepped into the cubicle that was my room, I took a brief look around and switched off the light. There had been no change. Everything lay as it had since my arrival. There had been only one addition in all that time between my first scouting trip to the ship and this ship. It was Fred. Fred? You might ask, who was he? He was my silent friend, a goofy little gray monkey I purchased in Austin that made the trip with me to the USS Houston. Fred sat on the desktop, lending his polished stuffed expression to the cramped atmosphere of my stateroom. In the darkness, I felt his presence as though he were a living and breathing best friend. We will get through, won't we, Fred? I said while looking at my little buddy. And although he was somewhat out of my sight, I thought he nodded slowly. I slipped out of my shoes and placed him at the base of the chair at my desk, 
along with my tin hat and life jacket where I could reach them quickly, just in case of an emergency. Then I rolled into my bunk and let my exhausted body just sink into luxury. The bunk was truly an actual luxury. For the few men who were permitted to relax lay on the steel decks by their battle stations. I, being an aviator with only the battered shell of our last airplane left aboard, was permitted to take what rest I could get into my room. Although there had been little sleep for any of us during the past four days, I found myself lying there in the sticky tropical heat of my room, fretfully tossing and trying to go to sleep, although it just wouldn't come. The constant hum of blowers thrusting air into the bowels of the ship, the Houston's gentle rolling as she moved through a quarter in sea, and the occasional groaning of her steel plates combined to bring into my mind the mad merry-go-round of events that plagued the ship during the past few weeks. Going back and forth in my time machine as I prepared for this big trip actually took a lot out of me. It was only three weeks earlier when I was in that terrifying battle in the Flores Sea, yet here it was haunting me again as it will do for the rest of my life. My mind pictured the squadrons of Japs bombers as they attacked time and time again from every conceivable direction possible. After the first run, they remained at altitudes far beyond the range of our anti-aircraft guns, for they had learned respect on that first run when one of their planes was blasted from the sky and several others were obviously hit and badly shaken. But that first salvo almost finished the ship. It was a perfect straddle, and the force of those big bombs seemed as though a giant hand had taken the ship and lifted her bodily from the water and tossed her a hundred yards away from her original course. There had been no personnel casualties that time, but our main anti-aircraft director had been wrenched from its track, rendering it useless. And we were taking on water aboard from sprung plates in our hull. I know, this is the time you, my friends, are asking, why was I even here in the first place? Sure, it was nice to be able to go back in time, but why tempt fate, right? I suppose I did it because I've always wanted to tell this story of the galloping ghost of the Java coast and jumped in there with all the other men. That particular day, the crew had only the steady barrage from the anti-aircraft guns and Captain Rook's clever handling of the ship to thank for keeping us all from the realms of Davy Jones' locker. But there was one horrible period during that afternoon when the Zeros almost got us for keeps 
500-pound bomb, and a stray at that, hit us squarely amidships aft. Some utterly stupid Jap bombardier failed to release with the rest of his squadron, and Captain Rooks could make no allowances for such as him. The salvo fell harmlessly off the port quarter, but the stray crashed through two platforms of the main mast before it exploded on the deck just forward of our number three turret. Hunks of shrapnel tore through the turrets, thin armor as though it were paper, igniting power bags into hoists. In one blazing instant, all hands in the turret and in the handling rooms below were dead. I hadn't really seen death that much before. It almost made me toss in the towel and get back in my time machine and get the hell out of Dodge. But I stayed. Go figure. Where the bomb spent its force, a gapping hole was blown in the deck below which waited the after-repair party. They were wiped out almost to the man. It was one hellacious of a battle, which ended with 48 of my shipmates killed and another 50 who were seriously burned or wounded. I strove desperately to rid myself of the picture of that blazing turret of the bodies of the dead that sprawled grotesquely in pools of blood, and the bewildered wounded staggering forward for medical aid, but I was forced to see it through. The way back to my room where my time machine was located was impossible to get to at that particular moment. It would require the repair crews to clear the way, and once again, I heard the banging of hammers Hammers that pounded throughout the long night as tired men worked steadily building coffins for 48 shipmates, lying in little groups on the fantail. We pulled in to Chillatap the following day. That stinking fever-ridden tiny port of the southern coast of Java. Here was where we sadly unloaded all the wounded men and prepared to bury the men who had died. It seemed that in the hum of the blowers, I detected strains of the death march. The same mournful tune that the band played as we carried our comrades through the heat of those sunburned, dusty streets of Chilatjap. I saw again the brown poker-faced natives dressed in sarongs quietly watching us as we buried our dead in the little Dutch cemetery that looked out over the blue sea. I still wonder what those slim brown men thought of all of this. Finally, we departed to harbor. After four days, we found ourselves streaming through the minefields, protecting the beautiful port of Sorabaha. Air raid sirens screamed loudly through the sky and throughout the city and our lookouts reported Jap Zeros in the distant sky. Large warehouses along the docks were on fire and a burning mechanic man lay on its side vomiting in the dense black smoke and orange flame. 
The enemy had come and most definitely had left its calling card. We anchored in the stream not far from the smoldering docks where we watched the Netherlands East Indian soldiers extinguish the fires. Several times during the next three days, we experienced air raids. Anchored there in the stream, we were as helpless as ducks in a rain barrel. Why our gun crews didn't collapse from exhaustion is a tribute in itself to their sheer guts and brawn, and definitely worth mentioning in this tribute to the USS Houston on this Memorial Day. They stood by their guns unflinchingly in the hot sun, pouring shell after shell into the sky, while the rest of us sought what shelter was available in the bullseye of a target. Time and time again, bombs fell, with the deep-throated swoosh of a giant bullwhip exploding all around us, spewing water and shrapnel over our decks. Docks less than a hundred yards away were completely demolished, and a Dutch hospital ship was hit and in flames and smoke climbing high. Yet, the USS Houston, nicknamed the Galloping Ghost of the Java Coast because the Japanese Empire reported her sunk on so many similar occasions, still rode defiantly at anchor. When the siren's baleful wailing sounded the all-clear, members of the USS Houston's crew who played musical instruments came from their ballast stations to the quarterdeck where we squatted to hear them play some swing tunes. Let's give them a listen to one tune the group played. I still find it absolutely amazing at the musical talent on the ship. God bless the American sailor. You simply can't beat him. Thank you. 
Scrooge, a Charles Dickens novel, the ghosts of the past continued to move into my little room. I saw us in the late afternoon of February 26, standing out of Sorabaja for the last time. Admiral Dorman of the Netherlands Navy was in command of our small striking force and his flagship, the light cruiser De Ruiter, was in the lead, followed by another Netherlands-like cruiser, the Java. Next in line came the British heavy cruiser called the Executor of Graf Spee fame, followed by the crippled, and I do mean crippled, USS Houston. Last in the line of cruisers was an Australian vessel. It was a light cruiser called the Perth. Ten Allied destroyers made up the remainder of our force and slowly, ever so slowly, we steamed past the ruined docks where small groups of old men and women and children had assembled to wave tearful goodbyes to their men who would never return. Our force was small and hurriedly assembled. We had never worked together before, but now we had one common purpose which every man knew it was his duty to carry through. We were to do our utmost to break up an enemy task force that was bearing down on Java. Even though it meant the loss of our ship and every man among us. It's really hard to explain at this point of my adventure, but when I looked into the eyes of the other sailors, there was no way I was going to hightail it and run and hide and exit from the ship in my travel machine. It was in me and the rest of us that lay the last hope of the Netherlands East Indies. All night long we searched for the enemy convoy, but they seemed to have vanished from previously reported positions. We were still at our battle stations the next afternoon when at 2.15 in the afternoon, reports from air reconnaissance indicated that the enemy was south of Bowen Island and headed south. The two forces were less than 50 miles apart. A hurried but deadly serious conference of officers followed in the wardroom. Commander Mayer, our gunnery officer, explained that our mission was to sink or disperse the protecting enemy fleet units and then destroy the convoy. I can't tell you how my heart pounded with excitement for the battle later to be known as the Battle of the Java Sea. It was only a matter of minutes away. Were the sands of time running out for the USS Houston and all of us, including me who manned her? I still had time to return to 2022. But to be honest, that thought went away quickly. At that very moment, I would have given my soul to have known. In the darkness of my room, the Japs came again, just as though I were standing on the bridge. A forest of masts rapidly developing into the ships that climbed in increasing numbers over the horizon. 
those dead ahead, ten destroyers divided into two columns and each led by a four-stack light cruiser. Behind them and off our starboard bow came four light cruisers, followed by two heavies. The odds weighed heavily, oh, and I mean heavily, against us, for we were outnumbered and outgunned. The Japs opened fire first, and sheets of copper-colored flame licked out along their battle line, and black smoke momentarily masked them from our view. Oh, I can't tell you how my heart pounded and pounded violently. Cold sweat drenched my body as I realized that the first salvo was on its way. Somehow, those big shells all seemed to be aimed at me. I thought for a moment that maybe I made a mistake and didn't hightail it to my travel machine. That thought went away quickly as I wondered why our guns didn't open up, but as the Jap shells fell harmlessly a thousand yards short, I realized that the range was yet too great. The battle from which there would be no retreat had begun. At 28,000 yards, the Exeter opened fire, followed by our vessel, the Houston. The sound of our guns bellowing defiance was terrific, and the gun blast tore my steel helmet right from my head and sent it rolling across the deck. The range closed rapidly, and soon all the cruisers were in on the fight. Salvos of shells splashed in the water ever closer to us, and now one fell close to the starboard, followed by another close to the port. This is an ominous indicator that the Japs had at last found the range. All of us stood tensely awaiting the next salvo, and it came with a wild screaming of shells that fell all around us. It's a straddle, but not a hit one registered. Four more salvos in succession straddled the Houston, and the lack of any hit gave us confidence. The Perth, only 900 yards astern of us, was straddled eight times in a row, yet she too also steamed on unscathed. Our luck was holding out. Shells from our guns could be seen bursting close to the last Jap heavy cruiser. We most definitely had her range, and suddenly one of our 8-inch bricks struck home. There was a large explosion of mortar, and black smoke rose into the air and debris flew into the air and fire broke out forward of her bridge. We drew blood first as she turned out of the battle line, making dense smoke all along the way. Commander Mayer directing the fire of our guns from his station high in the foretop, reported our success to the captain over the phone. A lusty cheer went up from every single crew member as the word spread across the ship like a wildfire. Three enemy cruisers were concentrating their fire on the Exeter. We shifted our targets to give her some relief, and it wasn't long after this that the Exeter shells found their mark and a light cruiser turns out of the Jap line, smoking 
and on flames shooting high in the sky. Despite the loss of two cruisers, the intensity of the Japanese fire still didn't seem to diminish. The Houston was hit twice. One shell ripped right through the bow just aft of the port anchor windlass, passed down through several decks and went out the side of the ship just above the waterline without exploding. The other shell, hitting aft, barely grazed the side and ruptured a small oil tank. It, too, failed to explode. Up to this point, the luck of our forces held up well. But now, there was a rapid turn of events as the Exeter is hit by a Japanese shell which does not explode but rips into her forward fire room and severed a main steam line. This reduced her speed to seven knots. In our attempt to save the Exeter, whose loss of speed made her an easy target, we all made smoke to cover her withdrawal. The Japs, aware that something has gone wrong, were quick to press home an advantage, and their destroyers under heavy support fire from the cruisers raced in to deliver a torpedo attack. The water appeared to come alive with torpedoes. Lookouts reported them approaching, and Captain Rooks maneuvers the ship to present as small a target as possible. At this very moment, a Netherlands East Indies destroyer called the Kurtner, trying to change stations, was hit amidship by a torpedo that was intended for our ship. There was a violent explosion, and a great fountain of water rose a hundred feet or more above her, obscuring all but that small portion of her bow and stern. When the watery fountain settled back into the sea, it became apparent that the little green and gray destroyer had broken in half and turned over. Only the bow and stern sections of her jackknife keel stuck above the water. A few men scrambled desperately to her barnacled bottom and her twin screws in her last propulsive effort turned slowly over in the air. In less than two minutes, she disappeared beneath the sea. None of us could stand by to give the few survivors a helping hand, for the fate of the Kurtner could be ours at any instant. It had been a long day, and it was nearing sundown. The surface of the sea was covered with clouds and also covered with black smoke, which made it difficult to spot the enemy. It was discovered that the Japanese cruisers were closing in upon us. Our destroyers were ordered to attack with torpedoes in order to divert them and give us time to reform. Although no hits were reported, the effect of the attack was gratifying for the Japs turned away. At this point, the engagement was broken off. The daylight battle has ended with no decisive results. However, there was still the convoy, which we will attempt to surprise under during the cover of the night. We checked our losses, and the Kurtner and the HMS Electra had been sunk. The crippled executor had retired 
to Sorabaja, escorted by the American destroyers, who expended their torpedoes in running low on fuel. The Houston, the Perth, the Ruiter, and the Java were still in the fight, but showing the joint effects of continuous gunfire. Only two destroyers remained with us. It was the HMS Jupiter and the HMS Encounter. The Houston fired 303 rounds of ammunition per turret, and only 50 rounds per gun remained. The loss of number three turret had been a great handicap to our ship, but there were no complaints from the brave men of the Houston, who had done well in the battle. The chief engineer reported that his force was on the verge of complete exhaustion, and there had been more than 70 cases of heat exhaustion on board in the fire rooms during the afternoon's battle. We were in very poor fighting condition, but there was still plenty more to be done. During the semi-darkness of twilight, we steamed on a course away from the enemy in order to lead any of their units which might have had us under observation into believing that we were in retreat. When darkness came, our orders were to turn and head back, again for a brief moment of rest before the next battle. I gave thought about returning my own time about that time, but I've never seemed to be needed more than I was treated right then and right there. Shortly after this HMS Jupiter, covering our port flank, exploded mysteriously and vanished in a brief but brilliant burst of flame. We were dumbfounded, for the enemy was not to be seen, yet we raced on puzzling over her fate and blindly seeking the transports. An hour passed. With nothing intervening to interrupt our search, and then high in the sky above us, a flare bursted, shattering the darkness. Nighttime had suddenly become daytime, and we were illuminated like targets in a shooting gallery. We were helpless to defend ourselves, but we had no such thing as radar, and the plane merely circled outside our range of vision to drop another flare and another flare after the first one bursted out. Following it was still more and more, yet still others. We couldn't tell for sure, but certainly it was logical to assume the enemy was closing in for the kill. Blinded by the flares, we waited through tense minutes for the blow to come to our ship. There was nothing else we could do. All the men on our ship spoke in hushed tones as though their very words would give away our position to the enemy. Only the rush of water as our bow knifed through the sea at 30 knots, and the continuous roaring of blowers from the vicinity of the quarterdeck were audible. Death stood by, ready to strike. Now, I wished I had gotten in my time machine. No one talked of it, although all thoughts dwelled upon it, including mine. The fourth flare bursted, burned, and then slowly fell into the sea. We were once again enveloped in darkness. No attack came, 
and as time passed, it became evident that the plane simply went away. How wonderful was the darkness, yet how terrifying to realize the enemy was obviously aware of our every move and merely bidding this time like a cat playing with a mouse. The moon came up to assist in our search for the convoy and it had been almost an hour since the last flare and nothing happened to indicate the enemy had us under observation. During this period, Ensign Stivers had relieved me as officer of the deck. I climbed up on the forward anti-aircraft director platform and sprawled out to catch a bit of rest before the inevitable shooting began again. I had hardly closed my eyes before there came the sound of whistles and shouting men. I got back on my feet in a hurry and looked over the side. The water was dotted with groups of men yelling in some strange tongue which I couldn't understand. The HMS encounter was ordered to remain behind to rescue him. Now, we were four. Three light cruisers and one heavy. We plowed through the airy darkness and suddenly out of nowhere six flares appeared in the water along our line of ships. They resembled those round smoke pots that burn alongside a road construction with a yellow flame. What exactly were they? And I asked myself, how did they get there? Were they some sort of form of a mine or was their purpose to mark our path for the enemy? None of the men dared to make a guess. As fast as we left one group astern, another group bobbed up alongside. We still couldn't account for them, and this oriental deviltry was as bewildering as it was confusing. None of us had ever seen such a phenomenon before. We continued to move away from them, but other groups of floating flares appeared. The uncertainty of what was to follow was nerve-wracking. We looked back, and there, marking our track on the oily surface of the sea, were zigzag lines of flares which rocked and burned like gallus jack-o'-lanterns. We left them on the far horizon, and no more appeared. We were again in welcome darkness. Then, at approximately 10.30 in the evening, lookouts reported two large unidentified ships to port ranged 12,000 yards. There were no friendly ships within hundreds of miles of us and therefore these were definitely the enemy. The Houston opened up with two main battery salvos, the results of which were never determined. The Japs replied with two of their own which threw water over the forecastle. With this exchange of fire, the Japs disappeared into the darkness and we made no effort to chase them for we needed all of our ammunition to sink the transports. There was no relaxing now. We were in an area where anything could happen. Hundreds of eyes peered into the night seeking the convoy as we realized that the end of our mission was approaching. During the night, the order of ships in columns shifted. The day Ruiter still maintained the lead, but behind her came the Houston, and then followed by the Java 
and the Perth in that order. A half hour passed without incident and then with the swiftness of a lightning bolt, a tremendous explosion rocked the Java 900 yards astern of the Houston. Mounting flames enveloped her amidships and spread rapidly aft. She lost speed and dropped out of the column and lay dead in the water where sheets of uncontrolled flame consumed her. Torpedo wakes were reserved in the water and although we could find no enemy to fight back, the Deruter changed course sharply to the right and the Houston was just about to follow when explosion similar to the one that doomed the Java was heard aboard the Deruter. Crackling flames shot high above her bridge, quickly enveloping the entire ship. Captain Rooks, in a masterpiece of seamanship and quick thinking, maneuvered to Houston to avoid all of the torpedoes that slipped past us ten feet on either side. Then, joined by the Perth, we raced away from the stricken ships and the insidious enemy that no one could see. How horrible it was to leave our allies, but we were powerless to assist them. Now that Admiral Dorman has gone down with his blazing flagship, the captain of the Perth took command, for he was senior to Captain Rooks, and we followed the Perth as he set a course for Batavia. What an infernal night, and how lucky we were to escape. How lucky I was that my time machine still was intact in my quarters. It appeared almost miraculous when the sun came up the next morning, February the 28th, for there had been many times during the past 15 hours when I would have sworn I would never see my lovely wife's face again. How crazy was I to make such a trip? But my story, although not published and in bookstores, was not going to happen. My special Memorial Day podcast would tell the truth. Surely, you will understand that. Now, back to the Houston. It was a wreck. Concussions from 8-inch guns had played merry hell with the ship's interior. Every desk on the ship had its drawers torn out completely and the contents thrown out all over the deck. In lockers, clothes were torn from their hangers and pitched into muddled heaps. Pictures, radios, books, and everything of a like nature was jolted from their normal places and dashed on the deck. The Admiral's cabin was a deplorable sight. At one time, it had been President Franklin Roosevelt's cabin, but no one could have recognized it now as such. Clocks lay broken on the deck. Furniture was overturned and mirrors were cracked. Charts were ripped from the bulkhead and large pieces of soundproofing that had come loose from the bulkheads and overhead were thick in the rubble on the deck. The ship itself suffered considerably. Plates already weakened by near hits in previous bombing attacks were now badly sprung and leaking. All of the glass windows on the bridge were shattered. Fire hoses strung along the passageways were leaking and minor floods made it a sloppy underfoot. 
the Houston was wounded. It emphatically out of ammunition, but there was still fight left in her, and a whole lot of it. These events accompanied by many others played upon my mind in the minutest detail, until at last my senses became numb, and I relaxed into a sleep. It was nearly 2,400 hours when clang, clang, clang. The nerve-shattering general alarm burst through my wonderful cocoon of sleep and brought me upright on both feet. Through two and a half months of war, that gong, that sound, calling all hands to battle stations, had rung in deadly earnest. It meant only one thing, danger. Man your battle station and get ready to fight. So thoroughly had the lessons of war been taught us to the sharp, heartless clanging of that gong that I found myself in my shoes before I was even awake. Clang, 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 clang. The sound, the sound echoed along the steel bulkheads of the ship's deserted interior. I wondered what kind of deviltry we were mixed up in now, and somehow I felt depressed. I grabbed my hat and left the room and was putting it on my head when a salvo from the main battery roared out overhead, knocking me up against the bulkhead. We were desperately short of those eight-inch bricks, and I knew that the boys weren't wasting them on mirages. I flashed my light to assist me in passing through the deserted wardroom and into the passageway at the other end, where a group of stretcher-bearers and corpsmen were assembled. I asked them, but they didn't seem to know what we had run into. I left them and climbed the ladder, leading to the bridge. Well, this concludes part one of my Memorial Day broadcast, and I'd like to ask everybody, before we continue with part two in the next episode, to please leave a review or go up at the beginning of the podcast, and there's a blue tab there that says leave voicemail message. Please, do either one. Leave a review, click on that, and leave me as long a message as you like, and maybe I'll put it on a future broadcast, or share the broadcast with your friends. As this broadcast now has expanded to over 50 countries in the world, and I would like to thank all of my listeners, wherever you might be, to this Memorial Day broadcast, and be sure to continue and uh, check in tomorrow, and we'll have part two, the remaining part of my story on the galloping ghost of the Java Coast, the USS Houston CA-30. Well, that does it for me for another great episode from Sydney St. James. Be sure to click on the tab above that says send a voice message and I will get it from you and I'll probably play it back on one of my future podcasts. Also, don't forget to click the button follow. I'd love for you to follow my podcast. But it's been fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And until next time, 
Here I am, Sydney St. James. Happy listening. <laughs>